From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today we bring you Carlos Colon, the history guy, and Madison Acey. Carlos tells us his story of growing up in a gang in Chicago and making his way out of prison to begin a new life. The history guy tells us the story of the 10 cent beer night riot in 1974 involving a losing Cleveland Indians team and a hot summer night. And Madison tells us her story of becoming a double amputee at 10 years of age. Let's begin with Carlos. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, in Humboldt Park. From the 70s on through the 90s, it was pretty drastic. Growing up with a single mom, um, you know, the gangs was pretty bad in the neighborhood and um, poverty was at its worst. I, I would think about it, now I think about my upbringing and it was a lot of empty lots, so there wasn't no playgrounds. It was just empty lots, no, you know, where no buildings were and where they used to be. So a lot of times, you know, we turn to the streets and, you know, you come from a dysfunctional home where you see drug abuse from uh, different men in my mom's lives and domestic abuse. Uh, I, I turned to the streets. I spent most of my life in prison from juvenile on through my adulthood. Single mother, never knew my dad, poor, and my mom was in two abusive relationships, so that had its toll. I was missing uh, the father's love, you know, for his son, and not only that, but a complete family, something, you know, a father's supposed to be, you know, sense of security, he's supposed to be the one to provide, and, and we didn't have that in my house. So I never knew what it was like to grow up a man, I pretty much was playing the guessing game and going off of uh, a lot of bad examples in my life ahead of me. And so, the streets were my father. In my teen years, I joined a gang, you know, and I clung to that. And what attracted me to the gang was actually just the unity. We all had something in common. A lot of us were miserable. We had uh, no fathers in our lives, and so, it's like a pack of dogs, you know, they, we, we hung together and we clung together and life spiraled real fast. We would steal a car in the city, a beat up car, go to O'Hare Airport and look for a nice car, something with, with rims and, and um, speakers and sound system and we would try to bring it back to Chicago and sell it. So we were doing this for a while now and we got caught. And when they caught us, it seemed like they were investigating so there was like six or seven cars that they charged us with, which trust me, we did take, but I ended up going, uh, fighting the case out as best I can and I ended up getting probation. The rules were too much for me, I couldn't handle it. They had house arrests and I had to do all these crazy things just to stay out of jail, which I violated. So I eventually ended up going to juvenile detention center, which is like juvenile prison. And that's where I spent a lot of time in and out of until 
you know, I got out at about, I think I was 17 when I got out. So from 15 to 17, I spent most of my time in and out of juvenile detention. And once I went into juvenile, I was being trained for when I got out to be worse. We were a small gang. So by being a small gang, we had more to prove than these big gangs. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, we were well established in, in Chicago. No, we were a small gang. We had one corner and in that corner, it was only, if there was 50 of us, which some people might think 50 is a lot of people, but there's hundreds and thousands of gangs out here. There could be no war going on because a lot of times we'll go into war and we'll fight with each other. I remember I would be driving with my buddies and we would see someone's car and we'd say, hey, that's so-and-so's car from this neighborhood and it's someone we don't like. And we would already know, okay, his car's parked here. Tomorrow or tonight in the late night, we're gonna burn his car. And um, we would burn cars, break windows, um, even to the point where sometimes we would go to other neighborhoods and jump out on people and jump them and act like we were a different gang just because, we, for the thrill of it, because we wanted to instill damage. And I would say even at 20, it got to the point where now, if we could catch you, but no one was around and we had a gun on us, we would actually try to kill you. You know, We would see if we could get away with it or at least shoot you or something without you knowing it was us. That's how bad it was, you know, it got, it just escalated from, you know, stealing cars in my life to knives, bats, guns, and murder eventually. And I remember getting into a shootout with somebody, getting away, telling a friend of mine about it. And um, after I spoke to him about it, shortly afterwards, they came back. I got shot. I got shot in the hand and in the leg, and I did about a month or two in the hospital recovering. And during that time, the war was still going on. Pretty much it started because I got shot. My buddy got killed. So that took its toll on me too. You know, he's a friend of mine who, he, his dad passed away and got killed. So he grew up without a father. And so I was bringing him up into the gangs and next thing you know, he's dead. So I felt that was my responsibility. And I wanted to take, I wanted revenge, you know, for so much. It was like just a pot of so much boiling and brewing and I wanted to get revenge. So I got out of the hospital and, and you know, when I got shot, I got shot because I ran out of bullets. So I didn't want that to happen no more. And I remember, um, saying, well, I'm gonna buy two guns and, and I'll keep one on me and, and when I'm walking with somebody, I'll let them hold the other one just to be safe. And as I was healing and recuperating and you know, I couldn't run, I was still walking with a cane, um, I ran into one of the guys who was involved in my shooting. I shot him five times and um, shortly afterwards, they pronounced him dead at the hospital and um, the cops were looking for me. It's funny because um, he was his only witness, but what happened was the cops actually grabbed one of the guys from my neighborhood, and um, instead of being a stand-up guy, he actually ratted me out. And so once I knew that the cops were looking for me, uh, it was over with for me. I had to leave the neighborhood. Chicago wasn't an option no more. So I fled and I ended up from you know, to Ohio, to Florida, Puerto Rico, Ohio, back to Florida for about, about 11 months I was a fugitive. I was working at this uh, 
furniture warehouse under a different name. I just made the union and everything, so I was meeting a lot of people, the big wigs from the warehouse, corporate. And I remember my supervisor walking up to me with, with this man, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna meet another supervisor. And when I shook his hand, he actually was a Orlando police officer that the extradition came over, and they actually, the warrant came, and they arrested me there. Um, and then the Chicago police came and got me and took me back to Chicago. And uh, it wasn't easy because I had a, a child on the way myself from a previous uh, relationship. And so this will be my first, my firstborn. It was my son. That was crazy because I grew up without a father. Knowing who my real father was, I found out he grew up without a father. And now I'm going to have a son who's going to grow up without a father. And I wanted, I didn't want that to happen. So that's pretty much how I ended up getting caught because I tried to keep a relationship with him. They sentenced me to do 20 years in prison. I had to do 20 years straight. You know, during that first 10 years, all I would think about is trying to uh, occupy my time, try to make it up the hill and over the hill to get home. And, you know, we would make homemade wine and, and smuggle in drugs and smoke reefer and, or weed, however you want to call it. And I remember when I was 12, I want to make sure that you guys know this. When I was a kid, I got saved. I found Jesus. The problem was I would go home and Jesus was not preached to me because my home was domestic abuse, drug violence, and so we were poor. It wasn't like God was in the house. But no seed returns void. So the seeds were in me. I get to prison and, you know, they say blessings and curses come out the mouth. And I would always speak these curses. Like if I ever see this one person, I'm gonna try to kill him. I'm gonna try to do this and that. And one of them was the guy that actually killed a friend of mine, my buddy Fredo. And he ended up in the same prison as me. And like he was in a big gang, but his gang turned on him and now the numbers were in my favor. So I wanted this guy and we got into a big fight, just me and him, and it got really bad where we ended up going to segregation, which is like a prison in the prison. And um, he actually witnessed to me, believe it or not. He actually shared the word with me and, you know, I didn't take him as serious, but no seed returns void, so the seeds were planted again. So that's when I said, enough is enough. You know, I just wanted something different. You know, I talked about the void in my life. Well, you know, I went to prison with a void in my life. I figured it out. I realized it. It was Jesus. I was missing God in my life. Even though he was always there, I never willingly recommitted myself to him. I, I never willingly said, okay, Lord, I need you to go through this with me. You know, I needed him as my father. I was looking for a father and, and he was always the one. So I remember making a prayer in segregation and I started praying and I asked God, listen, Lord, I know I'm in trouble. I know I'm going to go to a worse prison. I'm not trying to give you one of these prayers where if you get me out of this, I'll be good because sometimes, a lot of times we say that prayer and, and it's never the case. I just ask God to go with me and to, you know, watch over me and to surround me with believers and to make it where I can convince my wife to change her life and I can have a home at home when I get home ready for me, a, a, 
a church waiting on me. And, you know, I wanted to totally change my life. I just wanted to turn away from who I was and um, become something new. And so that started the next 10 years, which were the best 10 years of my life in prison. I was able to not only recommit my life to the Lord, but, you know, God was preparing me to come home. I, I, was, I was raised with bitterness and, and rage and anger, and God was showing me the root of it. And God reminded me that if you wanna be truly forgiven, and I've done some things, I was in jail for murder, if you really want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. And so that's when I was saying, okay, Lord, I release that unto you. Show me how to forgive. And so no longer am I mad at the abusive men in my mother's life or my mom for the way she raised me, even though times were tough, you know, she probably could have learned how to do things better. The past is the past. So I got to the point in my life where I said, okay, no more bitterness, no more anger, no more rage. Let's Let's fill that with peace and joy and uh, happiness. And I was hoping that he can make a way in my life, you know, to be forgiven by the families that I had took their son away, their brother away, their father away. You know, that was my prayer for the next 10 years. God was really spiritually getting me ready and motivating me for life outside of prison, a new life. There was this one man, I remember he was bold. His name was William Flores. And I would see him lead Bible studies. And you know, I knew, okay, God sent me here to meet this man. And you're gonna always run into to people in your life at certain times in your life that were real influential. And this was a key moment, because this was the beginning. And it looked like I was gonna become a closet Christian. I seen his boldness, I needed that boldness. And I know what boldness was about because in my life before Christ, I was always trying to be bold. So I seen this boldness, true boldness, by the way, no shame in speaking about Jesus. And I started attending his Bible studies whenever we would get recreation time. And I started picking his ear and he would pray with me and teach me things of the Bible. And we would have prison Bible studies where people from outside of the prison would come in and and freely spend time, voluntarily, by the way, fellowship with us, share the word with us. And, and we even had a Spanish preacher that would come and be bilingual and speak the word in English and Spanish just so more people could attend his Bible studies. These are people who had different personalities and they fed into my heart, into my life, where now I could pick their brains and figure out how to install these good qualities in my life, in my walk, when I come home. Now, I'm back in Chicago, and I work for my church. Not only do I work for my church, I'm in the same community that I did damage in. I remember going to Many Mills in Glen Ellen. It's called Radical Time Out, and it's a time where everyone gets together and they pray radically. It's a place where they can pray and fellowship together and break bread together and hear the word together, worship together. And I remember going that, you know, I had to go there, it's a must. I went there and I've been going there every chance I get and I gave my testimony there. 
And remember, I had spoke about forgiveness and I wanted God to restore what the enemy had broken. And shortly after my testimony, I spoke to Neftali, who is pretty much Manny Mills' right-hand man. And uh, I found out that somebody was there giving their testimony, who happened to be Nelson Vargas, the father of the man that I killed. And I spoke to Neftali about that and, and I let him know, hey, you know, you just had a man here recently and he just gave his testimony. I, I want you to know that that's the man whose son I killed. And Neftali went and through prayer, he spoke to Nelson and he set up a meeting where we met at Midwest Church with Pastor David and um, him and his family met me and my wife and he forgave me. You know, and this is something that was in my heart for the last 10 years in prison. Not only did he forgive me, but we have a relationship and he's wonderful, you know, and he tells me now I'm your father, you know, now you're my son, he tells me. And knowing that I killed this man's son, he would say that. And, and I think we both are embracing that, that relationship that's gonna grow and mature and nurture between him and I, and, and both our families actually, you know, and so I thank God because nothing is impossible for the Lord, and you know, if he can restore this between me and Nelson, just imagine what else he's gonna do, you know. Since I've been out, I work for my church now, and I'm working on trying to visit the prisons as well, because I want people to see life beyond the walls, but how it's possible through Christ, you know, to maintain a relationship with him and to have a life after jail, you know, other than prison. I want people to see hope. I don't deserve nothing, but God is good that he's given me. So I've been involved with my church now, working for the church. I do maintenance for my church and um, it's actually me and one more guy. We have all these properties that we have to maintain and I didn't know nothing about construction and plumbing and and my boss, Joey, he's, he's the best. He's younger than me, and he's a great teacher. That's Jesus, you know, and so I've learned a lot. My life now is just trying to live for the Lord, but be better than who I was. And I'll never make up for all the wrong that I've done, but at least we can make a difference today and every chance that we can get from now on, you know, we can try. So that's what I'm going for right now in my life. And what a story, and my goodness, as he said about life in Humboldt Park in Chicago, from the 70s to the 90s, it was pretty drastic. Lots of empty lots where buildings used to be. I turned to the streets. Missing the father's love of a son, that's supposed to be a sense of security, he said. The streets were my father whatever your religious beliefs, this is his testimony, and it's his story, and it's countless tens, if not hundreds of thousands of inmates, and that God turned their life around. And my goodness, I just asked God to go with me and surround myself with believers. He had to swap out friends to change his life, and don't we all? The next 10 years, he said, were the best 10 years of my life spent in prison. God was preparing me to come home. And by the way, to a home he never had. And then he found himself in those same streets, back in Chicago, working for my church in the same neighborhood I did damage. 
What was he trying to do? Heal and repair and restore. And then that scene, what a movie scene, right? Sitting down with the father of the son as he said, I killed. Carlos and Nelson met, and as he said, he forgave me. And my goodness, what a thing to have happened to you. And what a thing to then give as a gift to others. And forgiveness and bitterness, resentment, the rage that was boiling up inside this young man, it was no father in a street, in streets filled with no fathers. And we'd like to thank Hillsdale College, a sponsor of this program, for supporting us. And you can learn more about Hillsdale by going to hillsdale.edu. Sign up for their free and terrific online courses. I went to the University of Virginia Law School, and I learned more taking their Constitution 101 course than I did in three years in Charlottesville. So again, go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their free and terrific online courses. And now it's time for the story of the 10-cent beer night riot with the History Guy. 1974 was a depressing news year in the United States. President Richard Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal, which would eventually force him to resign in November, the first U.S. president to do so. The United States economy was in a deep recession, the result of double-digit inflation and the ongoing energy crisis. Patricia Hearst, the granddaughter of publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped in February and by April had claimed that she had joined her captor's cause, leading to nightly news stories. And on June 4th, in the event that perhaps best defined the trying times of the day, beer was too cheap in Cleveland, Ohio. It is history that deserves to be remembered. It was Tuesday, June 4th, and the Texas Rangers were playing a night game at Cleveland Stadium, the first of a three-game series. Cleveland Municipal Stadium, the first sports venue in the United States built entirely with public financing, opened in 1931. It was one of the first multi-purpose stadiums and had been home to the Cleveland Indians since its opening. And to the Cleveland Browns, originally with the All-American Football Conference and then with the National Football League since 1946. When configured for baseball, the stadium seated 74,400 fans, making it the largest in professional baseball in 1974. But Cleveland was a struggling city. Noted for its river pollution, the Cuyahoga River through the city was famous for literally catching fire. One such fire in 1969 had caught the attention of the nation via Time magazine, prompting the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. The Cleveland area had been a flashpoint for anti-Vietnam War sentiment after shootings by the National Guard at nearby Kent State University in 1970. The city was in financial difficulty. Crime was on the rise. In 1962, there had been 59 murders in Cleveland. In 1972, there were 333. The city had a difficult reputation, and people were leaving in droves. The city lost roughly 177,000 inhabitants between 1970 and 1980. And the Cleveland Indians simply weren't very good. They'd finished at the bottom of the American League East in 1973 and weren't doing much better in 1974. Commentator Paul Jackson of ESPN said of them, The 74 Indians were a smorgasbord of mediocre and forgettable talent, playing in an open-air mausoleum. It had become difficult to fill the massive 74,400-seat stadium. On May 13th, a mere 4,234 had showed up on a chilly night for a game against Boston. On average, 85% of the stadium's tickets went unsold. But the game against Texas on the muggy night June 4th attracted a respectable 25,134 crowd, twice what was expected. The reason? Cheap beer. 
The club was running a promotion. 12 fluid ounce cups of Stroh's 3.2% beer for just 10 cents each. There was a limit of six beers per purchase, but no limit on the number of purchases made during the game. The promotion wasn't new. Several teams in the league, including Texas, had done the promotion. Cleveland had done its first such promotion in 1971, when the beer was only five cents. Bud Tucker, a columnist for the Independent Press-Telegram of Long Beach, California, quipped, As a Frenchman is inspired by fine wine, or a Russian by classic vodka, so does a Clevelander react to 10-cent beer. The late Tim Russert, known for being the longtime moderator of the show Meet the Press, was 24 at the time and attended the game. In a statement that perhaps defined much of the crowd that night, he said, I had $2 in my pocket. You do the math. Perhaps there was more going on that night than cheap beer. It was particularly hot and muggy. The June date caught the college-age crowd just as they were coming home for summer, and as Anthony Kastrovitz of MLB.com noted in 2014, it was a full moon that night. In fact, witnesses note that much of the crowd seemed to have not waited for the cheap beer, and many seemed to have arrived already drunk or high. And for some reason, they also showed up with their pockets stuffed with firecrackers. The crowd started throwing them before the game even started, and they continued throughout. The rowdiness may have had something to do with the team's last meeting a week earlier, on May 29th in Arlington, which had had a bench-emptying brawl during the eighth inning of what would be a Rangers 3-0 victory. Rangers fans had thrown beer and food at the Indians team as they were returning to the dugout. The Indians were furious. Catcher Dave Duncan had to be restrained to keep him from going into the stands to brawl with the crowd. Indian second baseman Jay Brohammer, who had been at the bottom of the pile, promised revenge. Rangers manager Billy Martin added to the fuel. After the game, a Cleveland reporter asked him if he was afraid of fans retaliating in Cleveland. He responded, Nah, they don't have enough fans to worry about. Cleveland media kept the city riled over the course of the next week. On the morning of the 4th, several newspapers ran a story recalling the May 29 fight and noting, Hopefully, the battling will be strictly in the form of baseball. The Newark Advocate of Newark, Ohio, ran the story under the headline, Rangers and Indians to resume base brawling. Brohammer was quoted as saying that he had cooled down and wasn't looking for a fight. Instead, he hoped to get revenge by winning all three games of the upcoming series. The Cleveland fans, on the other hand, might have been making plans of their own. Texas quickly cooked the lead in the second inning after a home run by outfielder Tom Grieve. But a buzz was in the air, or rather... In the crowd, at the end of the second inning, a woman hopped the fence, ran over to the Indians on deck circle, ripped off her shirt, bearing her breast to the raucous approval of the crowd, and then tried to kiss the umpire. Amazingly, it wasn't the weirdest thing that would happen that night, nor the only act of exhibitionism. The fun was not all good-natured. Not only was the crowd throwing firecrackers and keeping the grounds crew busy throwing garbage onto the field, but when Rangers pitcher Fergie Jenkins got hit in the stomach with a line drive, the crowd started chanting, Hit him again! Meanwhile, the beer kept flowing. Unable to keep up, the vendors reportedly gave up trying to check IDs and started filling up whatever container was handed to them. This has been a night of blatant stupidity. 19-year-old fan Terry Yurkick recalled, I had a big dog and suds mug, maybe 32 ounces. Looked like a mini keg. Another witness said that as the crowd, which he described as notably younger and longer haired than usual, grew progressively more drunk, there were some antics every half inning or so. Young fans ran onto the field to dodge security. When Grieve hit a second home run in the fourth, extending the Rangers' lead to 5-1, to one, a naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base. Now there's another group of morons running around in the outfield. In the fifth inning, a father-son team jumped onto the field and booned the crowd. Another streaker ran across the field carrying his clothes with him, but still wearing his left sock. 
As he approached the fence, he threw his clothes over, planning his escape. The crowd could see what he could not. A Cleveland police officer was on the other side of the fence, catching both the clothes and the, uh, offender. The game had to be halted in the sixth, as the crowd was throwing firecrackers into the bullpen. Umpire Nestor Shylak cleared the bullpen, but was trying to let play continue. Fans were no longer just throwing beer and firecrackers, but also rocks, batteries, and any part of the stadium that wasn't bolted down. A group of fans started trying to tug the padding off the left field wall, drawing the grounds crew away from picking up the growing pile of trash that was landing on the field. Despite the antics, the game continued, and Cleveland managed to tie the game at 5-all in the bottom of the ninth, with two out and the winning run on second. But then 19-year-old Terry Yurkic, the fan with the Dogs and Suds mug, decided that he wanted a souvenir. It was not a good decision. He jumped the fence, ran up behind Texas outfielder Jeff Burroughs, and grabbed his hat. There's some controversy regarding what happened next. According to Yurkic, Burroughs kicked him. But because of the slope of the diamond from the Rangers' dugout, all Billy Martin could see was Burroughs' legs, and it looked like he'd been knocked down. More fans were climbing onto the field, and Martin thought, Jeff was out there all by himself. I saw knives and other things. We just couldn't let our teammate get beat up. He ordered his team onto the field, carrying bats to protect Burroughs. It was not a good decision. Seeing the Rangers leave the dugout sparked the already riled and inebriated mob. Fans stormed the field, greatly outnumbering the players. Now it's a full-scale riot. There has to be 200 people and more coming on the field. Martin recalled, now I know how the people of the Alamo felt. The crowd was carrying knives, chains, clubs made from stadium seats. Stadium security was overwhelmed, although it's hard to see what they could have done in any case. And no one had considered asking for a greater police presence. Seeing the melee and Rangers players being injured, Aspermonte ordered the Indians onto the field. Hargrove has got some kid on the ground and he is really administering well, a beating. Well, filling him up and hit him from behind is what happened. The two teams who have been fighting each other so recently made common cause against the mob. Oh, this is absolute tragedy. I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. Outnumbered, they fought their way back to the dugouts and retreated into the locker rooms behind locked doors. Shylak, bleeding from a cut on his head from a thrown bottle, called the game as soon as the players made it inside. He said he didn't do it earlier for fear it would spark retaliation against the players. The game was called a forfeit, going into the record books as a 9-0 loss for the Indians. Fans kept rioting, stealing everything they could take, including, literally, stealing the stadium's bases. So really, the organist played Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Director of Stadium Operations Dan Zerby ordered the lights shut off, and the Cleveland police arrived and restored order. They turn the lights out, everybody's gone except for 15 teenagers standing on top of the Rangers' dugout, chanting for the Rangers to come out and fight. And so I went up there and asked them, what are you, what are you want, trying to prove? Because the Rangers are gone. So some kid behind another one reaches out and punches me right in the jaw. He didn't even stagger me, he hit like a girl. Despite the apparent violence, there were no serious injuries and less than a dozen arrests. Area hospitals reported seven people treated and released. Tencent Beer Night perhaps summed up well in a dismal decade for Cleveland and their baseball team. The prospects for both would eventually improve, but not really until the 1990s. And you've been listening to the History Guy tell, well, just a great American story. Not a good one, but boy, a great one. And my goodness, I love what Tim Russert, the former host of Meet the Press, said. He was 24. He was there. A big sports fan, a big Buffalo sports fan. He said, I had $2 in my pocket. You do the math. I did do the math. That's at least 20 beers. And even for someone who can hold it down, trouble lurks. 
a great American story, a great sports story, and in the end, a little bit of the American character revealed, and perhaps not the most beautiful part, but a funny part. And folks, the stories you're hearing, the same stories you can hear on our website, and the same stories you can hear at a radio station near you, are brought to us by generous supporters around the country. Uh, we are a nonprofit. And though what you're hearing is free and will always be free, it's not free to make. So if you can or feel inclined, uh, send us a donation, a small one. Heck, a big one would be nice too. But any donation would be welcome here. If you love what you're hearing, if you want positive, beautiful, and redeeming stories about this country, this great country we all live in and love, uh, send your donations to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. We're grateful for you listening and we'd be grateful for your support. Up next, the story of Madison Acey, a girl who became a double amputee at the age of 10. Here's Madison. I grew up in a very small Mississippi Delta town. We had a population of 5,000 people. I had a pretty normal life. Like when I was really young, I went to a very small private Christian school and we were all very close because there was so, so little of us in the town. And that made things kind of easier because when I was 10 years old, my life kind of started becoming really unordinary. I was at my best friend's house at the time. And like most kids in the Delta, we were outside playing in the fields and we had been cleaning her dad's barn all day and then we decided that we wanted to go play on the tractor that had been sitting there for a few years and we went over to it and we started playing on it and I had on rubber boots and they got caught in the railing on the top of the tractor so when I started to fall I caught myself on a live power line that was hanging on the side of the road and it then electrocuted me with 10,000 volts of electricity. The electricity exited from my hip and my back and then shot out of my hands. And it completely killed my right arm and then my left hand. And my friend sat there and watched the whole thing. She was only 10 years old too, so it was very hard for her to witness. So her mom then called the ambulance in took them a while to get there, but it also took them a while to get my hands off the power line because I was knocked unconscious. So the farm hands came over and finally got me down. If I wouldn't have been wearing the rubber rain boots, I would not have been grounded. The electricity would have exploded out of my feet and my arms and back, and that would have killed me. So ultimately, the rain boots are what saved my life. The ambulance finally arrived. And I remember waking up, but all I could see was clouds and a blue sky and looking around and seeing everybody. And I remember hearing everybody screaming and freaking out and crying. And so that confused me because I had no idea what had happened. And they wrapped me up in what looked like tinfoil. And then it was like a light switch went out. And I remember waking up a month later. I was airlifted from Dundee, Mississippi to Le Bonheur in Memphis, where they instantly amputated my right arm. And then the next morning I was flown to 
Cincinnati, Ohio, and they tried to save my left hand and it just kept making it worse and it was almost gonna kill me, so we had to amputate it at a little bit below the elbow. I was having surgery every single day, twice a day. And then after almost a month and a half, I finally was good enough to where I could go home. I was in pressure garments to keep my wounds sealed. So it was like a skin tight outfit that was from my knees up to my neck that I had to wear all day, every day. Then as soon as I got home from the hospital, I had letters and stuff people had written me in my floor So I slowly found a way to get onto the ground and I started trying to crawl. And since my balance was so weak, I face planted onto the floor. Being so young, it just was really scary because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never gonna be able to do anything again. Then I broke my leg, jumped on the bed and it snapped. That was because when the electricity exited my hip, it had caused a hairline fracture in my femur that was just waiting to break and all it needed was a little push. So I was then in a wheelchair for eight weeks and still had to go back to school. When my friends first saw me, some of them were were excited to see me because they were happy that I was alive, but they were also scared at the same time because we were so young and we had never experienced anything like that. So it was just really different, my friends adjusting to being around me. They also had to figure out what I needed help with and like when was the right time to ask me for help. Honestly, that was my motivation to learn stuff so well when I was younger because I didn't want my friends to not want to be around me because they were going to have to do this and this and this for me just over and over. When you're a 12-year-old little kid, that's annoying. You would just want to be a kid. You don't want to sit there and help your friend do everything. So... It kind of just taught me to learn to do stuff for myself. For almost a year after my accident, I literally could do nothing for myself. I literally had to get help with everything. My hair, brushing my teeth, changing clothes, eating, showering, everything. Slowly after that, I was just like, I'm gonna have to figure it out because I can't sit like this for the rest of my life having my mom help me with everything. At first, it was obviously very difficult relearning everything trying to figure out life again at such a young age, but slowly things just started falling into place. When I first had my accident, obviously our big mission was to find prosthetics for me so I could start learning to use them. And we ended up getting two prosthetics. It was one arm, and then I had a hand that looked very realistic, but... The thing is, we got them, took them home, everything, and then we had to find the process of paying for them. And so we were trying to go through insurance, and they denied us and said that hands were not medically necessary. So then things started getting really difficult. We were scared that they were going to take them away from us, but we ended up finding a way to pay for them. But they were very expensive, so it took a long time. By the time I had finally gotten to where I could have the prosthetics, and found some I liked and that I was comfortable with. I had already learned to do just about every single thing. So it was way harder to try to relearn with prosthetics because then it was like starting back at square one. So I do still have prosthetics. I have a right arm and a left hand and they are currently in the bottom of my closet and they have been for the past three and a half years. Another reason I really don't use them is because They're extremely heavy, and it's not a very comfortable feeling. My arm is really squished in there and will lose circulation and fall asleep. 
And on my right side, that's a full two foot arm hanging off my shoulder made of metal. And so it's really heavy and my shoulder starts cramping. Most of my friends will tell you, it's just weird seeing me with them on. One time my friend and I were at my house and she wanted to see me with my prosthetics on. So I surprised her and walked out with them on and it put tears in her eyes because she had never seen me with arms before. And so it's just a completely different person you're seeing. I just wasn't supposed to have arms. And so all my friends know that. So I just don't ever wear prosthetics. It became a completely different household. Mom had to give me so much attention, helping me that my younger brother would feel left out. But he was really young at the time, so he was always worried. He was like, is this year going to die? He was just so scared that I wasn't going to be there the next day because it started to feel less like a home, but more like a at-home hospital. So it kind of got difficult for a while, but... They brought me this little band that usually goes on people with arthritis that can't use their fingers, and it happened to fit the end of my arm perfectly. You can insert like a pen, a pencil, a fork, makeup brushes, my toothbrush. That's how I do everything almost, is my cuff. Driving was one of the scariest things to learn how to do, obviously, but it was never really a difficult thing to do. I've always thought it's because that's the one thing I did not know how to do before I lost my hands. So learning to drive with half an arm was the only way I knew. So I just went on doing high school. I played basketball. I was a cheerleader. I did track. I did all kinds of things. I traveled. And being an amputee gave me opportunities to go to the Bethany Hamilton retreat in California every year starting in eighth grade. It's a retreat for amputees that we all get to get together and just bond on our what we have in common. <laughs> Going to the Bethany Hamilton retreat has been the greatest experience of my life. That is why I'm honestly so grateful to be an amputee. Every single girl that comes in is completely unique, has a completely different story. A lot of kids were born without limbs. Some come in have had accidents. One of my best friends that I met there, she lost her hand when she was three years old. She put it in a meat grinder, three years old. So it's just not, it's just awesome to hear all these crazy stories. And like, we can all just sit back and laugh about it because we've all been through stuff like that. It was always interesting meeting new amputees and seeing how they did things and how you would assume that we would be all more comfortable around each other. But sometimes I'm more comfortable around my friends with arms and all their limbs because it's not as intimidating, as crazy as that sounds. When you're in a room full of girls that are every single one of them are an amputee and you're seeing how different everybody does everything. It just kind of overwhelms you and you're like, well, am I doing this wrong? Am I doing this wrong? Should I be doing it like this? This one girl has one hand so she can do a ponytail. Makes me so mad. I'm like, I just need two fingers. I just need two fingers. And so when you leave the room, you try to go do all these things in ways you saw these other girls doing them. And then it frustrates you because you're feeling like you're having to go from step one even though I love all of my APT friends, I wouldn't trade them for the world. It does get overwhelming 
like feeling like you're doing things wrong because you're not doing them the same way they are. But then when I'm the only amputee, I feel like I'm doing everything the way I'm supposed to be doing it because that's my natural way of doing it versus their natural way of doing it. Bethany has way more people that look at her than we do on average. And so she just gives good advice on how to not let the negative people affect you and just to keep putting your faith in God because he's done this to us for a purpose. I remember sitting in the hospital with my mom and one night her Bible fell off of her bed and it turned to Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and to give you a future. And it's just literally what has gotten me through everything because God has a plan for me. He knows what he's done with my life. He doesn't make mistakes. This is his purpose for me and his purpose was to prove to others God is going to bring you through it. He doesn't do this to punish you, but to prove to you and to prove to others that Everything has a purpose in life. You'll figure it out eventually. One of the scariest things after my accident that I always thought about was, oh my gosh, I'm never going to have a boyfriend. Like that was like the biggest fear of mine was I'm never going to have someone love me. I'm never going to get married and all that stuff. And thinking about, am I going to be able to take care of my kids? That's always been something that's been scary because obviously I have not experienced that yet. And it's just scary to think that what if I'm stuck being a mom and I can't take care of my child? And I know that I'm not even a mom yet. That's like a mom's biggest fear. And simply like wanting to go get a manicure, wanting to wear cute rings and stuff. It sounds lame, but that's stuff girls love to do and I don't get to do that. Obviously at times I'm like, this is awful. It's hard to explain because of the mindset that I've created for myself. I don't get upset because if I wouldn't have had my accident, my life would be completely different than it is now. I would not have the friends I have. Nothing in my life would have been the same. And so it's hard to be upset when looking at it like that. When I got to college is when I first started to really have to do things on my own completely and there was a few things that I just really did not know how to do by myself well I didn't think I knew how to do for myself the first thing was learning to brush my hair I had never done that before and I figured out how to do it and one day I was going somewhere and of course the shoes I wanted to wear the laces were untied so I just figured out how to do it I just had to use my mouth and tie my shoes and there's just so many things I really did not think I was going to be able to do. And then as time got, went on and I was forced to learn how to do them myself, it became easier and easier. And now on, I do it all by myself. When I'm in class, I write my notes just like every other student does. I can load my backpack up just as fast as every other student. I'm usually the first person out of the room. During school, I don't feel any different than anybody else. After I graduate college in the spring, I'm going to attend an online school to get my interior design license and become hopefully an interior designer. That is my goal. And I would like to remodel houses for a living one day. That's my favorite thing to do, but it's also a job that I can physically do because most of this stuff is done on a computer and I can work a computer. So it just makes it really easy for me to physically be able to have an interior design job. 
there's no, almost no job that I can do right now at this age without a degree. So it's very upsetting when you're told that hands aren't necessary to live, so you don't qualify for disability. When there are people that get it for just any excuse and they, it, they take it and run with it. People nowadays try to do anything to make sure that they are getting handouts versus working for what they want in life. I would love more than anything to be able to go out and work. I don't like sitting at home being lazy. I can't stand it. My brother's always like, well, go be a cashier. And I'm always like, what well, do you want me to spit your change back at you? <laughs> There's things that people just assume that I could do and they just don't think about like how would I actually do it. Those people take for granted what they have in life and they don't appreciate what they do have. Something I always say is life isn't about what you've lost, it's about what you have. That's just what I try to keep in mind and help people understand is you've got to get up and move on with your life because you were given this life for a purpose and not to waste it. I've ended up having really a pretty normal, extremely normal life, just physically look different than everybody else. I've been very fortunate to find people that could care less. And all my friends tell me all the time, they completely forget that I don't have hands. And it's really refreshing to hear. Even though my life has not turned out anything like I would have expected, I literally would not trade my life for the world. I feel that I was handpicked by God to be an amputee and to show others that you can do anything you put your mind to. And that's the main thing that I've learned is if you want something, you can achieve it no matter your circumstances. I just am very thankful to be an amputee because it helps me stand out in ways that others may not. And be on a platform to inspire others to achieve the goals they want throughout their life. And you're listening to Madison AC tell her story. And oh my goodness, what a thing to happen at the age of 10 and to wake up a month later and really understand the gravity of that and how you're going to live the rest of your life without arms. And then to listen to her voice, well, you knew that she made it through. But my goodness, put yourself in her shoes. And what a story we can all learn from. I mean, that she formulated the sentence, I am grateful to be an amputee, is really remarkable. And don't let negative people affect you, she said. Moreover, when she said these words, well, I, I just started crying. The scariest thing she said, the biggest fear I have, is that nobody will ever love me. The obstacles Americans overcome each and every day, that humans overcome with their own perseverance and grit, is just remarkable. Thanks for listening to the Our American Stories podcast. And on the next episode, we tell the story of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the lake freighter that sunk with a 29-man crew on board in 1975. And we also tell the story of Ron Brown, who reconnected with his absent father, an absent father he thought was dead. We also tell Eileen Hall's story, the woman who joined the Army to find her husband in the midst of World War II. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. To learn more, go to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com.